We are in part four of a series called The Last Word on the Gospel of John, and it is appropriate and accurate to say that the Apostle John does have the last word about Jesus in the New Testament because his gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation penned by him, they are the final documents penned by any of the apostles. So as John puts his pen to parchment about 60 years after Pentecost, he knows he's the only original voice left. He knows he's the only surviving elder of the first century. And so when he writes his gospel sometime after A.D. 90, he really does have the last word about Jesus. His gospel is unique for many reasons. 90%, 90% of what we read here is exclusive to John. There are no parables in John, but there are many conversations in this gospel. And he's very selective about the events and the miracles that he records. And many times he puts them together, a miracle with Jesus' teaching. Now, we talked about this already. There's no Christmas story in John's gospel. No baby in a manger. Um, no shepherds or wise men. No Bethlehem. No star or angels in the heavens. And that's because John knows that the birth of Jesus was well covered by Matthew and by Luke when they wrote their Gospels about 30 years earlier. And he also knows that the truth of the Incarnation has been believed and preached by the New Testament church even longer than that for about 60 years, six decades. So on that one, the Incarnation, and on many other doctrines, John assumes that his readers already know what Jesus and the New Testament church practiced and preached. And that's why it is critically important. It's not a play on words. It's critically important to read the Gospel of John as the last word. To understand that his writing, his Gospel, comes after the other Gospels. After the book of Acts and after the New Testament epistles. It does not come before them. John is not writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing a theology of Jesus. Now, he spends the first half of his gospel, chapters 1 through 11, summarizing the first three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. This section contains seven miraculous signs, and those signs identify Jesus as the Word made flesh, and those signs culminate in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's the last of the seven signs. And because that miracle is so dramatic and so well known, at that same point, the Sanhedrin begins plotting to put Jesus to death. And then that spins us into the second half of the Gospel of John. And it doesn't cover three years. It covers one week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And that section actually spends five full chapters, chapters 13 through 17, detailing just one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at the Last Supper. So everywhere we look in this gospel, this is so important, we're not just seeing John emphasize what Jesus did. He's emphasizing what Jesus said about himself. And even more than that, he's emphasizing who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the last word from God. 
And last time we were together, we ended here. Uh, the, the most familiar verse in Scripture to many people, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we'll just launch tonight. We've already talked about that verse. So I just want to start here. Yes, God so loved the world. Yes, God gave his only begotten son, which is to say God has already done his part, but now it's our turn, it's our part, now we must believe. And the Greek word for believe is pistuo, and we see it nearly 250 times in the New Testament. And the Gospel of John has the highest concentration of that Greek word, 98 times. The book of Acts has the second highest occurrence, 36 times. John's gospel talks more than any other book in the New Testament about belief and salvation, or what many theologians would call saving faith. But please hear me. John's gospel, which uses this word for believe 98 times, it never uses the noun belief. It always uses the verb believe. John is trying to tell us something that is so very critical to our understanding of the gospel. Faith is not a passive word. Faith is an action word. If you truly believe, you will obey. If you truly believe, you will commit. You see the word pistuo, it doesn't just have the sense of faith. It has the sense of trust and commitment. And that's why you don't have to read very far in the New Testament to discover that saving faith is also obedient faith. And the person who says that best is the person who happened to grow up in the very same household as Jesus, his half-brother, James. And James doesn't play. James chapter 2. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and he hath not works? Rhetorical question, can faith save him? Can faith like that save him? Can faith alone save him? That's James' question. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you go to them and say, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you didn't even give them the things that are needful to the body, what did that profit? And then here's his point. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, it is dead being alone. That's not real faith. Yea, a man may say, James says, a man might say, you have faith and I have works. James says, you show me your faith without your works, but I choose to show you my faith by my works. And this is funny. There's funny things in the Bible. You believe that there's one God. You're doing great. High five. You're doing great. You're doing well. The devils are on the same level as you because the devils also believe. Actually, the devils are doing better than you because they believe and they have an emotional response. And some people don't. They just say they believe. The devils believe and tremble. They react to the truth that there's one God. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. 
Now he gives us some examples. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? You say, well, Abraham had faith. Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a great man. Abraham was the patriarch. And, and James would say, well, yeah, but Abraham did something. Abraham just didn't say, I believe in God. Abraham just didn't say, well, I believe that God spoke to me. Abraham got up, left Ur of the Chaldees, headed for a land he'd never seen, following a God he couldn't see. That's works. And then he offers his own son Isaac. That's good works. And then James says, don't you see how faith wrought with his works? Faith worked with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And then the scripture was fulfilled. When Abraham's faith caused him to obey, when Abraham's faith caused him to commit, then the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him. It was added to his account for righteousness. And then he was called the friend of God. After his faith caused him to believe, caused him to commit. And then James says, you see then, surely you can see it. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only, not by faith alone. Then he gives us another example. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. She lives in the pagan city of Jericho. The spies come by, tell her that God is going to destroy, destroy the city and she believes them. She believes them so much that she hides them from her own people preserving their life. She believes them so much that she sends them on her way again endangering her life. She believes them so much that she takes a scarlet cord and hangs it in her window for the weeks and months until they return, believing that her obedience, her commitment to what has been spoken will save her life. And so he says, this is his conclusion, for as your body without your spirit is dead, so your faith without works, without your response, without your obedience, without your commitment, it's dead also. That's James. He grew up in the same household as Jesus. He would know. Now, a majority of scholars actually believe that the epistle that James wrote, that we just read that big section from, they believe that was the first book written in the New Testament. It was written around A.D. 50, around the time of the church council in Acts chapter 15. And then we already know that the Gospel of John was probably the last book written in the New Testament sometime after A.D. 90. So when the Gospel of John, in even scriptures like John 3.16, when it talks about believing, he's not contradicting James' theology. He's continuing James' theology. The New Testament church, by the time John writes John 3.16, the New Testament church has now preached for over 60 years that when you believe God's word, you commit to God's word, you trust God's word, and yes, you obey God's word. Do you remember the question of the crowd on the day of Pentecost? It wasn't men and brethren, what must we believe? It was men and brethren, what shall we do? 
They had enough faith to make them do something in obeying God's word. And what did they do? They repented, they were baptized in Jesus' name, and they received the Holy Ghost. So John continues in chapter 3, and that's where we begin this week. Verse 17, for John sent not his son into the world, for God sent not his son into this world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. But it was so that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We already either have eternal life working in us or eternal death at work in us. Condemnation or judgment, condemnation is what is, is going to separate saints and sinners in eternity. Sinners will be condemned and they will be put in an eternity without God. Saints will not be condemned and they will live forever with God in heaven. So condemnation is what separates saints and sinners in eternity. But can I tell you, condemnation is what separates saints and sinners right now. Sinners act like sinners because they are living under condemnation. They're living under judgment. That's why they reject the idea of a God with authority to judge them. But saints act like saints because in our lives there is now no condemnation. We have fallen in love with a God who took our judgment on himself. Don't you ever get high and mighty and haughty and think that you're better than some sinner you met on the street. It's just that Jesus took your judgment and so you're not living under judgment. They're still living under judgment. That's why they act the way they do and live the way they live. Paul said it well in Romans 8. There is therefore now, somebody say now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that is what has made me free from the law of sin and death. I didn't get here on my own. I'm not worthy of this on my own. I'm not going to heaven on my own. I didn't get the Holy Ghost on my own. Jesus did this for me. Jesus set me free. He took my judgment. He took my condemnation. So this all begs a question. If condemnation is what separates saints and sinners not only in eternal judgment but right here right now what does this condemnation look and act like John's next statements will be about light and darkness and they echo chapter 1 John 3 verse 19 and this is the condemnation you know what it want to know what it looks like or acts like or feels like this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. We know who that is from chapter 1. That light is Jesus. Light has come into the world and men loved darkness. It's hard to comprehend, but men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil and they wanted to keep doing those evil deeds. 
And then John says, for everyone that doeth evil, continually does evil, continues to do evil, they hate the light. Neither do they come to the light, lest their deeds would be reproved or judged. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, opened up, transparent before God, that they are wrought in God. So bottom line, John says, if you love darkness, you hate the light. If you love evil, you hate good. If you love the lie, you hate the truth. And brothers and sisters, this is the current conflict in human culture. It's not just an earthly conflict. There's war going on in the heavenly realms right now. And it is a battle between light and darkness, evil and good, the lie and the truth. It is the current conflict that is uh, around the world in every sphere of human existence. It's behind the wars and the rumors of wars. It's behind wickedness in high places. It's behind all of the battles we're having about morality and sexuality and gender and everything else. This is the conflict. But can I bring it down to where we live? It's not just the current conflict in human culture. That is the ongoing war for every human soul. It's the battle between light and darkness every single day. It's the battle between evil and good every single day. It's the battle between the lies of hell and the truth of God every single day. Now before we move on, I want you to notice a couple of phrases. He says, everyone that doeth evil, somebody say, doeth evil. And then in the next verse, in verse 21, he says, but he that doeth truth, somebody say, doeth truth. John contrasts doing evil with doing truth. Not just knowing truth, but doing the truth. Our deeds are made manifest. They're open before God, whether we are doing evil or whether we are doing the truth. And then, for the very final time, John references the ministry of John the Baptist. Because it's John the Baptist who first introduced us to the light. And when we see John the Baptist in chapter 3, just like when we saw him in chapter 1, of course, John the Baptist is baptizing. And he's baptizing in a place where there is much water. Because baptism, biblically speaking, is by immersion in water. And he is, chapter 3, 24, he is not yet cast into prison. He's still alive. He will be cast into prison, and there's where he will eventually be beheaded. John doesn't mention that. He knows about it because he mentioned it uh, as far as him not being yet in prison. But Matthew 14 and Mark 6 record in the other Gospels that John will be beheaded for his preaching. John's disciples, their leader's still alive, very much so. He's still baptizing. He's the one who just two chapters earlier introduced the world to the light, to the lamb, to the Messiah, to the one that should come after, to the one who is greater than I, to the one who I'm not even worthy to get down on my knees and unloose his sandals. But John's disciples are envious they say it right here in verse 26. John, all men are flocking to Jesus. 
the crowds are leaving you and they're going over to Jesus and his disciples. They're envious. They're jealous. But John isn't jealous because the forerunner knows that he has done his job. So he reminds his own disciples once again. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness. You heard me say it. You heard me preach it. I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. That was the theme of my whole ministry, John says. Not me, but him. That still better be the theme of the New Testament apostolic church. Not us but him. That still better be the goal in every worship service. Not us, but him. That still better be the philosophy of every preacher in every pulpit. Not me, but him. That better be your idea when you serve Jesus every day and face temptation and war against the devil. It's not me. It's not my strength. It's not my goodness. It's not my power. Not me, but him. Now, I've said for many years that John the Baptist is the ultimate model of leadership transition. I've said that for years. And he proves it best right here. Because in a moment when he could have defended his ministry, he deflects the glory to Jesus. And here's what he says. It's beautiful. Verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth by and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. You know what John just said? I'm Jesus' best man at his wedding. I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is. The bride doesn't belong to me. The bride belongs to him. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. My greatest joy is fulfilled by pointing people to him, by pointing them away from me and to him. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm Jesus' best man. I stand by and I watch Jesus' look of love for his bride and I just say to people, look at that. That's our job, church. Just look at the joy it brings Jesus to be gathered his bride and we don't need the attention we don't need the credit or the glory nobody needs to know your name but if you can point somebody to the bridegroom who is preparing a bride you've done your job and you can take great joy in it oh my <laughs> and then John gives us the greatest principle of leadership transition in my books anywhere in any generation he says he must increase, but I must decrease. I, um, I'm like David. I have been young, and now I am old. And I've talked to a lot of leaders, young and old, and the question that begs to be asked is, if that's the greatest leadership transition principle in human history, probably, he must increase, but I must decrease, why don't more leaders do that? Why do they hang on until they die and nearly take their congregations with them? And I have an answer. I've thought about this for a lot of decades. 
It's because decreasing is harder than dying. Everybody's going to die. But to decrease intentionally, that's harder than dying. It's easy to just take off and leave it all behind. But it's harder to be intentional. Can we pull that out of the leadership world and can we put it back in your world? We can make this all about us so easily. We can make this all about our needs, our moods, our requests, our prayers, our disappointments. Or we can make this about him. And if we make it about him, you know, there's just something so wonderful. We still have needs. We still have disappointments. We still have unanswered prayers. We still have all of that. But if you make it all about him, there's a special joy that comes with just celebrating the bridegroom, gathering his bride. There's just a a special joy that comes with that. Why is John the Baptist so adamant about pointing people to Jesus? It's because unless people believe in Jesus Christ, unless they commit to him, trust in him, have faith in him, obey him, follow him, that's what that word believe means in John. Unless they believe in him, they cannot have everlasting life. In chapter 3, this is Nicodemus' question, this is Jesus' answer, and it's John's declaration. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I'm so grateful for a day in my life when the wrath of God was picked up off of me and placed on Jesus. I am forever grateful for being able to walk in freedom, not in bondage, to walk in light, not in darkness, to walk in good, not in evil, to walk in truth, not in a lie, to not waste my life beating around trying to achieve positions and possessions and prestige, but I can invest my life in his kingdom. And the longest, greatest, best part of my life begins one minute after I leave this life here. That's John's concern. Now let's move to chapter 4 tonight and spend the rest of our time there. In chapter 4, Jesus himself shows us. Because of all this, John's not just kind of a random selection of chapters. It's it's a progression. It's it's a gospel written to show us something, to prove something to us. And so we've just been through chapter 3. You've got to believe in Jesus Or you've got condemnation, you've got judgment, you've got eternal punishment, you don't have life. And so in chapter 4, Jesus himself, he shows us in John's account just how important it is to reach everyone and anyone with the message of the gospel. And we understand just how radical this was if we just know a little bit of history. The Old Testament historical books record that both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, both of those kingdoms ended up in captivity. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And Samaria fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. And it fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., roughly 135, 36 years later. But while the southern kingdom returned from captivity after 70 years 
as prophesied by Jeremiah, that northern kingdom never really returned as a whole. Assyria deported most of the people. They took them captive. And then they settled the land that was left with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites. By the time the southern kingdom, Judah, came back home, they were shocked to see what had happened to the northern kingdom. They were now considered Samaritans, half-breeds, racial misfits, intermarried with pagans, doing and living part of the Jewish religion and part of pagan religion. And so the Jews down south despised and disdained the people they called Samaritans. And when the Samaritans, when they, reject, when they uh, rejected the Jewish religion, they eventually ended up building a rival temple. They didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim in around 400 B.C. And when they built that temple, a replacement for the temple in Jerusalem, when they did that, the division between Jews and Samaritans, it was complete. The Jews considered the Samaritans vile and unclean. And you can see on the map that instead of taking a pathway straight north through what used to be a capital city, Samaria, now it's a whole territory, Samaria. Instead of traveling straight through Samaria, the Jews would actually cross the Jordan River twice and go up through Perea and come back into their own territory. All that, all those extra miles, all those extra hardships just to avoid the territory of Samaria. It happened with everybody, every trip, every time, but not Jesus. This chapter begins with these words, and he must needs go through Samaria. If you were putting that in some kind of a modern self-written paraphrase, you might say, and Jesus had a divine appointment in Samaria. Jesus ends up sitting on a well, which is the center of town, in the city of Sychar, which is the center of Samaria. And he sends his disciples off into the city for food. And he just sits there and waits for an anonymous Samaritan woman to show up. He just waits. He is on a divine mission to reach the most unlikely person. We don't understand just how radical this was. He's a man and she's a woman. And in that day, they didn't talk to each other in public. He's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And in that day, they didn't talk to each other either. He is holy and she is grossly unholy. And those kind of people certainly didn't talk to each other. So Jesus breaks all propriety and protocol when he simply looks at that anonymous woman and says, give me to drink. She's floored shattered, shocked, and she says as much in verse 9. You're asking me for a drink? You, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, you, a man, are asking me, a woman, for a drink? For the Jews have no dealings 
with the Samaritans. She's shocked that he would even speak to her. And here's Jesus' answer in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you just knew the gift of God, if you just knew who it actually is that's talking to you right now, if you just knew, if you only knew who it is that's saying, give me to drink, you wouldn't be waiting for me to ask the questions. You'd ask me this question. You would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is looking at her with compassion in his own eyes and no doubt she can feel that vibe and she's never felt it before. If you only knew what you were really thirsty for, if you only knew what you were really hungry for, if you only knew what God could do for you, if you only knew whose presence you sit in every time you're at a worship service at CCC. If you only could dream who it is that you lifted your hands to just moments ago, if you could see him in his glory, if you could get one little mental iota of his power fixed in your cranium, you'd ask him anything. You'd ask him for miracles. You'd ask him for wonders and signs. If you could only grasp just who it is that you're talking to. It's not just that woman at the well. It's all of us if we could just grasp the God that we have a hold of in the apostolic church if we could just understand who it is that we offered worship to tonight if you could see him for one split microsecond in his glory you'd understand that when you lift your hands like touching an electric wire healing can flow from his hand down through your worship and change everything miracles can flow down from the the heavens and flood into this sanctuary and all of a sudden deliverance can happen just like that if you only knew who, who it is that you're talking to my goodness and the woman she's like so many of us she doesn't really get it and the woman said unto her sir water you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So how can you say that you have living water? You don't even have a bucket. She doesn't get it. Just like Nicodemus didn't get it in chapter 3. Jesus said to him, you can be born again. And Nicodemus said, where's the womb? And now Jesus says to her, you can have living water. And she says, where's the bucket? They just don't get it. And then like most people who are brought face to face with truth, she tries to deflect the conversation to a religious argument. You've never seen more religious people when that when you try to hit them with truth from scripture. All of a sudden, everybody is a religious expert. They've got all the deep thoughts and all the hard questions. She tries this. Here's what she says to Jesus, who just offered her living water. She says, are you greater? Then our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle, are you saying you're greater than our father Jacob? She's deflected because she's uncomfortable with truth, just like so many people. So now she's going to try to stump Jesus with hard questions. 
That ever happened to you? Of course it has. Because that's the first line of defense for somebody that gets uncomfortable in the presence of Bible truth. They want to play 20 questions. And so that's what she's trying to do. And Jesus, in a compassionate way, he doesn't hit her hard. He just answers her question truthfully because he is the truth. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you superior to Jacob who gave us this well? And Jesus said, um, yes. I am superior to Jacob because a greater than Jacob is here. In fact, a greater than Jonah is here. A greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Moses is here. A greater than all the angels is here. So yes, I am superior. But I'm not arrogantly superior. No, I'm graciously superior. My superiority, in fact, is your salvation. You have thirst, I have water. You have hunger, I have bread. You have questions, I'm the answer. You have needs, I'm the provider. You have a past, I'm the restorer. You have shame, I'm the forgiver. You have sin, I'm the savior. So yeah, I'm superior, but that's good news for you. Oh my goodness. And it works exactly that way tonight. We're not backing down or shutting up or quieting down because we know Jesus. We're going to brag on him. We're going to exalt him. We're going to praise him. We're going to preach him. We don't hate on anybody. We're not intolerant of anybody. We're not right-wing religious bigots. We're not hard-headed. We're actually pretty bright because we found the one of whom all the prophets wrote. We found the one who is altogether lovely. So yeah, we're just going to tell you he's superior, but it's good news for you you that he's superior he is the great I am oh my goodness just lift up your hands and praise him for a second I, I just need who oh yes 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 Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Mm, mm, mm. And then Jesus answers her. And he says to her, You see, whosoever drinks of this water in this well with your bucket, they will thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You'll have your own built-in spiritual well is what he's saying. Now this anonymous Samaritan woman, she has no sweet clue who she's actually talking to. And furthermore, she has no idea she has just walked smack dab right into the middle of prophecy. Because Isaiah, 600 years before she was ever born, said this. 
Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. She just walked right into the middle of a prophecy and doesn't even know it. Do you know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? It's Yeshua, which means Jehovah has become salvation. And do you know what the Greek form of Yeshua is? It's Jesus. So the prophet Isaiah, 600 years before this moment, actually declared, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus just looked at her and said. I am the living water. I am the well. I am the thirst quencher. And he doesn't just say it to her in the Gospel of John. Oh, he'll say it again in just a few chapters, but we're cheating here. I'm going to jump ahead. Most notably, he says it at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. And here's what he said, not just to an anonymous, anonymous woman in Samaritan territory at a well in Sychar, but he said to everybody in Jerusalem this day, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, see there it is again, I'm going to believe in such a way that I obey the scripture. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What's that, Jesus? John adds a parenthesis. But this spake he of the spirit which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Did people believe in Jesus while he was here on earth? Oh, yes, they did. Just like people today believe in Jesus. But Jesus himself said, there's something more than just believing in me. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is how you get the living water of Jesus into your life. Now John just put in brackets there. He said, and it was not yet given when Jesus was walking around on earth. But I got good news for you. Jesus already died, was buried, rose again, and ascended. Jesus has already been glorified. So the Holy Ghost is already given. And you, anybody, anywhere, anytime can have the living water of the Holy Ghost, the well of Jesus put inside of you. And when you receive it, it'll flow out of your belly like rivers of living water and when those rivers hit your tongue you will speak in a language that you've never ever learned just like every Christian in the New Testament I'm so glad to be part of an apostolic church that actually gets that understands that loves that practices that preaches that and experiences that my, 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 my. <laughs> so now the Samaritan woman's interested. Now she's interested. But she still doesn't get it. She wants to leave her bucket behind, but Jesus wants to leave her sin behind. She's interested in convenience. He's interested in conversion. And that's when he calls her bluff. 
She says to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. If you can just give me this water, I won't have to carry this heavy bucket anymore. If you'll just give me this water, I won't have to come here at high noon when none of the other reputable women come. I sneak here at noon in the heat of the day because I'm so ashamed of my past. So I'd really like you to give me this water so I don't have to come here anymore and that I don't thirst. And Jesus calls her bluff because he knows she's looking for convenience. No, he wants something deeper than your convenience. He doesn't want to be an add-on to your already full life. He wants to be your Lord and your Savior. And so Jesus said to her, he calls her bluff, and he says, oh, okay, good. Go call your husband and come back here. Here to where you felt the shame every day when you've come at high noon when no other woman comes. Go call your husband and come here. But she can't bring her husband because she doesn't have a husband. She just has a string of five failed marriages and at least one illegitimate relationship that she's currently living in. She has spent a lifetime believing that these men would quench her thirst for love. But her bucket has only been filled with sin and shame and hurt and pain and longing and loathing and frustration and desperation. She doesn't need water for her bucket. She needs water for her soul. But to admit that it's all a facade and it's all a put on and you don't really have it all together and you're not really the big man on campus or the lady in charge, that's very uncomfortable to admit. And so one more time, she deflects the conversation. This is kind of cute, but it's sad at the same time. The woman said unto her, him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Another religious question, here we go. They always do it when they're uncomfortable with truth. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. An animal will chew off its own leg to escape from a trap. And a sinner about to be exposed will do just about anything to escape conviction. This is what she says. Wow, Jesus, you're amazing. You're a prophet. Hey, as long as we're on the subject of my sexual sin, where do you think we should worship? In this mountain or in the mountain at Jerusalem? She's deflecting. She's hiding. It's amazing how many people instantly become amateur theologians when they're brought face to face with truth. But Jesus, with compassion and love, he doesn't shame her. He doesn't humiliate her. He just goes right to the heart of the issue. It's not about the Samaritans, and it's not about the Jews either. It's not about a mountain. It's about the Messiah. It's not about a place. It's about a person. It's not about tradition. It's about truth. And it's not even about a well. It's about true worship. So before we try to parse out where you should worship and what it means and looks like, Jesus goes straight to the punchline. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is 
a spirit and they that worship him must worship him not in one mountain or another. They must worship him in spirit and in truth. Little grammar lesson here. The English translators did well. Kudos. God is a spirit, capital S. So we must worship him in spirit, small s, our spirit, and in truth. The word spirit is pneuma, and it's the same whether you're referring to God's spirit, capital S, or your spirit, small s. It's pneuma and pneuma, which means you can't really worship God unless there's a spirit connection between your spirit and his spirit. Don't ever get in the habit of just kind of waiting through church for the preaching to get over or the altar to get over or the next song. A worship, true worship, is not about what we sang tonight. It's not about the phrases or the sentences or the ideas that the preacher strung together. True worship is not even about what motion you went through as we proceeded through the service. True worship is your spirit, small s, connecting with God's spirit, capital S. And if your spirit ever connects with his spirit, anything can happen in an environment like that. God is a spirit and they that worship him, they must, it's a must they have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the word truth, which here in the Greek language is aletheia, it refers specifically to divinely revealed truth. Yes, truth means sincerity. Yes, yes, truth means being transparent with God. But this is different. Aletheia refers specifically in Scripture in the New Testament, especially in John, to divinely reveal truth. In other words, we must not only connect with God according to spirit, we must connect with him according to his word. That's what John has been saying now for about three and a half chapters that you've got to believe in Jesus. Believe on Jesus. You've got to have faith in him, not according to what you think of him or how you've handcrafted him. You've got to have faith in him according to his word. In case you think that's some kind of burden, it's not. Here's the benefit. If you will be a true worshiper, if you will worship him in spirit, your spirit connecting with his spirit and in truth, your spirit being obedient and submissive to his word, God can do it anything in your life. John even says at the end of this gospel, I didn't record everything that Jesus did or said or every place he went. I just recorded some signs so that you would believe. I wrote this all down for one reason. I'm trying to get you to believe. I'm trying to get you to commit. I'm trying to get you to obey the word of God because if you believe the way the scripture says, you will have life through his name. My goodness. So, one last time, <laughs> this anonymous Samaritan woman tries to deflect the conversation. She's good at it because now the truth is getting really close to home. The woman saith unto him, Oh, I know that Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. Someday in the future, in the sweet by and by, pie in the sky. 
when he has come in the future, he'll tell us all things. Oh, I know it'll all wash out. All roads lead to heaven. We're all going to the same place. Let's just love Jesus. I know Messiah's coming in the future. When he's come, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus looks back at her and he says, I that speak unto thee am he. Or literally in the Greek language, the one that is talking to you, I am. You remember in the Gospel of John, only John records the I am statements of Jesus, where he directly claims to be God manifest in flesh. And the very first time Jesus ever said, I am, wasn't in Jerusalem in the temple courtyard. It was in the middle of Samaria to a little anonymous woman who didn't have a prayer or a hope or a chance. And when he said to her, I am, she finally figured out who she'd been talking to that afternoon. That little woman dropped her water pot and ran into the city with a glorious testimony. And we read these words just a few verses later. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman because she testified, he told me all that ever I did. He knew my past. He knew my present. He knew my shame. He knew my history, but he didn't concentrate on it. He didn't dwell on it. He didn't hold me to it. He didn't shame me with it. He forgave me. He gave me a reason to live. And I'm just here to do what John the Baptist was doing just a few verses ago. Not me, but him. Don't look at me. Look to him. Don't get what I'm saying. Get what his word is saying. It was also in Samaria. In the end of this conversation, he sent his disciples away because they would have been so offended by him talking to a Samaritan woman, they would have gotten the road. So he sent them into town to buy food. And when they came back, they heard him talking, the end of the conversation to this woman, they're shocked. They hear him talking about wells and water and quenching thirst and so they get together, all 12 of them, real bright and say, he must be hungry. You need something to eat, Jesus? We, we got some groceries. And he says, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. My meat, my sustenance, my sustaining forces to do the will of God. And I just did the will of God in reaching to the unloved and the unlikely. And it's right here at the end of this story where Jesus breaks all propriety and all protocols to reach a person that nobody else wanted. It's also in Samaria where Jesus first spoke these words to his disciples. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Don't say the harvest is coming. The harvest is here. It's just a harvest you're not expecting because it's a harvest of the unlovable and the unlikely and the people you think are unredeemable. The, the Samaritans. He says in verse 37, and herein 
is that saying true? He literally looks at them. After he says, don't say four months and then comes harvest. I'm trying to tell you, if you'll just lift up your eyes and look around, there's fields everywhere all around you. And the fields all around you, the people that you think hate God and hate truth and hate the scripture and hate everything else, those people, they are the fields that are white already unto harvest. And then he says in verse 37, and herein, guys, disciples, right here in Samaria is that saying true. The revival that you've been praying for, the revival that you've been hoping for, the great crowds that you want to follow me and flock to my message and live for me like you live for me. It's happening in Samaria, right under your nose. You just didn't see it coming. So I went out of my way to show you that even in Samaria, we can raise up disciples. You know the book of Acts. If any church knows the book of Acts, you know the book of Acts. You know they'll also struggle over that place called Samaria. In fact, they'll resist it and reject it and stay away from it and keep going around the long way until finally God himself sends some persecution to his church and he pushes them out of Jerusalem. And a young man named Philip ends up in Samaria and he doesn't know what else to do. So he just starts preaching Jesus. And revival breaks out in the book of Acts in this city. Don't you want to know that Jesus showed them the way months and months and months and months before? He showed him the way. And he's showing us the way. That little passage isn't in the gospel of John just so we can have a little tearful story or a, an inspiring little lesson. That story's in the gospel of John as a motivator. Don't walk around them. Don't walk by them. Don't ignore them. Don't keep your distance. Wade into the middle of Samaria because you have living water in you. Lift up your voice and pray for a minute. I'm finished. Oh my. We've had wonderful inspiration and beautiful worship. But something else just moved into the building. That's called conviction. It's, it's a motivating word from God. I wish you'd embrace that conviction just like you embraced worship and revelation. Lift up your voice and pray, great church, just for a minute. <laughs> Eto robolo to rababa kushe sababu kutabaha. Eto rabala to lahas yesos tababa kutalababate rabakusha. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Would you stand and lift your hands and lift your voice and let's just honor the Lord one more time in this room. Jesus is preparing you for conversations you don't even know you're going to have. He's preparing you for interactions with people that your natural inclination will be to argue with them. And he's trying to tell you, don't argue with them. Gently lead them. Don't argue with them. Love on them. 
Don't push back. Pull in.